listening to Connection Church's podcast. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing this morning? Are we alive? All right, good, good. I hope you guys are, are alive and active. I know how many of us are experiencing the holy hangover after Christmas. Anybody? That should have got way more laughs than that. Come on now. Anyway, my name is Cody. I'm the student pastor here at Connection Church. I'm so glad to be with you as we continue our series called God Gave. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12. We're going to continue right along. I know some of us have probably brought in families from out of town, and hopefully if you... Sorry, I actually want to apologize if you brought your families to come see uh, Brandon teach, and then you got me. So um, he is here, so you can still see him. So... um, that hopefully you guys get the chance to do that. But so excited about this series and what God has been doing. Uh, lives have been changed. I just want to take a moment to celebrate. We had one person go from death to life last service, so let's just celebrate that as a church. God is already doing some awesome things today, so that should jack you up as a Christian. If not, you need to check your pulse um, because that is an amazing thing. So Hebrews 4, verse 12, this is not the passage that we're going to be studying. Rather, it's just one to help us lead into what we're going to be studying today. Uh, four. 12, it says, is everybody there? If not, it's going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just stop by one of the tables in the back and we'll get you one after service. But Hebrews 4, 12, it says, for the word of God, somebody say word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, Father. We thank you that it is alive and it is active here this morning. We thank you that we can stand on it as truth. Lord, we ask that today you just use your word to penetrate our hearts, Lord, to work out things that need to be worked out. Help us hand over the things that we are holding on to to you. We thank you that you've already changed lives this morning, and we pray that you just continue to do so through this, uh, through this teaching and through this series. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you guys know that flu season's here. Anybody here have gotten the flu yet? A bunch of, some, some of us, yeah, a lot of us. I know it's been going around a lot. It's been a heavy time for flu. I think this is, they said this is like one of the worst years for the flu here in Statesboro. But don't they say that about every year? Like every year it's always, this is the worst. But, you know, it may have been, it may be, I don't know. I know that 50 kids got sent home from a school or something like that. Uh, so that is pretty intense. This is the season, too, where you take extra precaution. How many of you guys have, like, bathed in Germex over the last couple of days? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm everything short of just drinking it. So I'm trying not to get the flu. But I'm not only, I don't actually, I only, only take extra ca- caution. I'm an actual, um, more concerned. I, I take extra concern. I'm a worrier. So, like, when, when I start seeing symptoms develop, like, if I get a headache or anything, this is just me by nature. I begin to Google the symptoms, like, what the heck is wrong with me? I type in my symptoms, and it gives you a list of things, and you begin to diagnose yourself, right? You know, I did this, I began to do this um, here recently in this year. My wife and I, we've made a lot of transitions in the past year, uh, moving from Texas, and I've experiencing a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, just about just the move and everything. It was just intense, and I noticed that my leg just would shake nonstop. Like, I mean, my leg was shaking something crazy. I thought something was wrong with me, so I Googled, man, my leg is shaking, it won't stop. What is it? And all of a sudden, all these forums show, show up saying, you have shaky leg syndrome. <laughs> it's a real deal. I mean, some of us in here may actually have it, and my heart goes out to you because that's intense. Your leg doesn't stop moving. So, like, I call, babe, we need to go to the doctor now. I got shaky leg syndrome. I don't even know what they give you for that. Just a straight cast or something? I don't know. But I thought I had shaky leg syndrome. I'm extra concerned. And this past weekend, our son Cove, who's two years old, he, we know that the flu is going around. We know that stomach bugs are going around. But I choose to be concerned way more than I should. And I choose to go to Google instead of God, usually, is what I do. The first thing, I start Googling things. And um, Cove, it was at about 2 o'clock in the morning. He started getting really sick to his stomach and started throwing up. And he did it for a, for a while and my wife and I, we got really concerned. I was freaking out completely because I'm a, I'm a worrier. So I get on my phone the wee hours of the morning, and I Google, and I, I Google the symptoms. He's throwing up. It's not good, all this other stuff. And, of course, WebMD says chronic vomiting disorder. I lose my mind. I'm like, we're taking him now to the ER, right now. And I, and, and I did, and I'm glad I did because he needed some medication. But when I got there, I began to tell the doctor, yeah, uh, my son 
he's got uh, the uh, vomiting or the chronic vomiting disorder. You know, and they're like, or it's just the flu, or it's just a bug in his stomach. No, it's chronic disorder. I saw it. They said, where'd you hear that? It's like, well, on the forum, it said, talked about by a doctor. You know, at the bottom, how it says the author, the author of the chronic vomiting disorder article was apparently a doctor. So I thought I knew everything, but ultimately, I didn't think about it being the flu. I didn't think about it being the stomach bug, nor did I think about the fact that my son had a two bowls full of jalapeno ranch dip before he went to bed. <laughs> and twice today, people have said, you let your two-year-old have jalapeno ranch? It's not that hot, okay? It's not that hot. We're not bad parents, okay? So chill out. I don't want to hear any emails. I'll just respond to you with some choice words of, you know, encouragement, um, we're not bad parents. He got into he got into it. He loved it. That's why we didn't. I mean, he was just like, "Oh, this stuff is good." He, but yeah, so it wasn't the flu. It wasn't the stomach bug. It was just a lot of jalapeno ranch dip. If you haven't tried it, I re- highly recommend it, but not for your child. So, just saying that. But how that all kind of ties in is that we're looking this morning in a passage in John four. You can go ahead and turn there in John four. We're looking at a passage where Jesus actually heals. A, a young boy, an official son, who is seriously sick. I mean, there is no over-concern. There is no over-dramatics. This kid is terminally ill, and he's on his deathbed. So when I, when I think in perspective of my little worries, and this, this is a real deal. I mean, this kid is very, very sick and um, is in need of a miracle. So we're going to walk through that this morning. But before we do, I just want to kind of give you the setting of where we've come through from this God Gave series just real quick. Um, what we've seen so far is John opens up the book of John. We're going through the book of John throughout over the next few series. So I encourage you guys to read the book of John as we continue to go through it. But in chapter one, we see that Jesus is revealed as, as the word. He is, the word was God. The word is with God. The word was God. That's what John says at the very, very beginning. And in chapter two, we see Jesus do um, a miracle turning water into wine. That was a private miracle um, to his, for his disciples to kind of reveal himself to them as well. And what we see, though, is Jesus is doing something amazing just in what he's, just in what he's doing, just like walking around meeting people because it sets a tone for us as Christians as to how we are to, to receive and to talk and to accept people. Because what we see is he's meeting, first he met with nobody fishermen from nowhere nothing towns, called him to be his disciples. And then in chapter, and in chapter three, he met with the fourth richest man in Jerusalem at the time, a highly sought after Nicodemus, who had influence with Gentiles. He had influence with the Jews, very sought after man theologically, professionally. Um, I mean, he was just, people flocked to him. They would desire to have him on their side. So you have Jesus meeting nobody fisherman. You have him meeting a somebody theologian, rich, wealthy man, and then you have him in John chapter 4, the beginning of John chapter 4, he's meeting a woman without a name by a well who's probably the most immoral woman in the town. So we see Jesus meeting people right where they are, and that's amazing. He's, he's going from the rich to the poor to the, to the people who have something, the people who have nothing. He's revealing himself constantly to these, to these people, and that sets a tone for us as we're moving into this John chapter 4, verses 43 through 53. Jesus has had a successful ministry in Samaria. This is right after he met with that woman at the well, and he revealed himself to her. She she recognized who he was. She went out and grabbed the whole city and brought him to him, and Jesus had a very successful few days ministering to those people who, in the culture that time, were hated by Jews. It was like a huge racial tension. It was a huge religious tension there, but Jesus is meeting people right where they are, and it's beautiful, and that leads us to John chapter 4, where he's meeting an official, kind of like a soldier guy. He's he's meeting with this guy who's from like a military standpoint, so it just shows that Jesus is interested in every single one of us here this morning, that he desires to meet us right where we are, and that shows us that we need to do the same. So John chapter 4 43, you're going, to, you're going to see a crowd of people, you're going to see an official, you're going to see his sick son, and you're going to see how Jesus interacts with all of this. That's kind of the setting. So John 43 through 45 is where we're going to start. We're going to do it kind of differently. We're just going to break down the passages as we read. We're not going to read the whole text at once. It says in 4.43, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
So what's taking place is Jesus has gone from Cana to Judea, to, to Jerusalem for the feast, and now he went to Samaria to do a ministry event there, and now he's coming back to Cana. And Cana is in Galilee, and Jesus is a Galilean. So what John is quoting here is Jesus saying that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. He wasn't well received in his own hometown. Nazareth was a nobody, no nothing town, less than probably 100 people at the time. Even, even one of his disciples said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It was looked at as a city of drunkards, a city of sin. It was the lowest town that they, that they can pretty much think of at the time. And um, it was a, just not a really popular place. So he says, I'm not going to be received there. That's essentially what he's saying. They won't honor me as a prophet. And what's interesting is the very next verse you see there, it says, they welcomed him. He says, a prophet is, not, is without honor in his own hometown. He gets back to Galilee, where he's from, and they welcome him. Reading straight off the text, wouldn't you guys say that that kind of seems like a contradiction? How it says, I mean, it literally says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor. And it says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. A lot of skeptics will take this passage and say that's a contradiction. We like to do that sometimes. We like to take things that seem contradictory and then use it as an excuse not to do the gospel. And you say, oh, it's, it's irrelevant. It's not, it's not useful. Here's the deal. It's not a contradiction because what Jesus is saying is they won't welcome him for who he is. And he's absolutely right. What they did was they welcomed him because he was doing a lot of signs and a lot of wonders and a lot of miracles. They welcomed the show, not the savior. Does that make sense? You guys still with me this morning? I can start over. They welcomed the show, not the savior. If you're taking notes, write that down because so many times we come to church and we're just here for the show. Whether we're here for the show to show people, hey, I'm here, I go to church here, or whether we're here to experience the awesome worship that we have. Sometimes it's just easy to get into the routine of just going to church just to go to church. If you were to tell one of the disciples back in his day, hey, let's go to church, they would look at you like you're crazy. So the question is, are we here for the show or for the Savior? Because it says that the Galileans welcomed him, but it was a false welcome with false expectations with physical-minded people just like you and me. They were more concerned with what he can do than who he is. So that's the backdrop that we get right off the bat. And that's, a, that's beautiful because that immediately draws us in there because if I'm being completely honest with you guys, that's like me sometimes. Sometimes I just get so caught up in the routine of things that I forget that we're actually serving a bigger purpose here, here as a church, not at the church, but as the church. So keep that in mind as we're reading throughout this Um, Because it says they welcomed him. And what you have is you have this group of people in Galilee welcoming him. I call these people, if you're taking notes, write this down, the crowd of the curious. You have the crowd of the curious people surrounding Jesus. They're just curious about what he can do, but they're not really serious about who he is. Crowd of the curious. That's going to be important as we continue to talk. Because all throughout the Bible, you see people surrounding Jesus. They were just merely curious. Very few of them were actually serious about who he was. So... False welcome, false expectations, physically minded people. That sets the backdrop for us moving into the actual story, beginning in verse 46. So let's read 46 through 49 together, and then we'll discuss this. It says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So immediately we're drawn into the text of of a seeming desperate situation. You see this official coming to Jesus from Capernaum, which is like a six-hour trip, leaving his son on his deathbed to go pursue Jesus. And it's important to know that this guy at this point in time, he's not a saved believer. He just recognizes that if anybody is capable of doing something, it is Jesus, because Jesus had been in Capernaum and had done some things that he had heard about. So he leaves his son on his deathbed to go pursue this Jesus guy, this Jesus of Nazareth. It's important to understand, too, this guy is an official. So many times people get consumed with the fact of the word official. You're like, what are you talking about? A lot of people take this text and say they get consumed with, is he a Gentile or is he a Jew? This official, because if he's a Gentile, that kind of adds a little umph to your sermon saying, man, God is bringing the Gentiles to him right away. But if it's a Jew, it's kind of like, oh, it's not as impactful. Here's the deal. 
people get so caught up on the minor details of the scripture that they're missing the whole point. Does that make sense? We get so caught up on these tiny little details of is this the official a Jew or a Gentile that we miss the whole point of what Jesus is trying to do. So John, his concern, the author of this book, is concerned about the deity, not the detail. Okay, so he says an official, most likely, just to tell you guys, most likely he's probably a Gentile. But here's the deal, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, that doesn't matter. If he's a Jew or a Gentile, he's still putting everything, his reputation, his livelihood on the line for coming to this Jesus of Nazareth. Putting everything on the line. We skim over these passages and, it's, and it just doesn't impact us the way until we actually understand it. Jesus was from Nazareth, that nobody, no nothing town. This guy's an official. He has a position of authority. He has a position of power. Whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, he's putting his reputation on the line by going to this nobody, no nothing man who is apparently doing signs. He's risking everything for Jesus because we know in the New Testament when the church is launched, as soon as people started being professing Christians, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes, they were thrown out in the streets. That's why the disciples had to take massive collection offerings for people who were without a home because they believe in Jesus. They were risking their livelihoods to share the gospel. My question to you this morning, church, is is that us? What are we risking for the gospel? Are we willing to risk our reputation? Are we willing to risk a friendship? Are we willing to be in an uncomfortable situation? Francis Chan puts it the best. He says, if you've never found yourself at a position where you're, or he says, if you're constantly not at a position where you're wondering if God's gonna pull you through, then he challenges our faith. He says, I challenge you to seriously examine your faith if you're not putting something at risk. Because becoming a Christian is not just a thing. Because you're not really a Christian until you begin to follow Christ. That's just the gospel. And what we see is that these people are putting, are risking everything. And it's important to know that two words that never describe Christianity, easy and safe. Those are two words that never describe Christianity, easy or safe. You're gonna lose friends. You may lose a job, you may lose a relationship, but our God's bigger than that. So many times we focus so much on what we lose that we forget that we're not gonna, that what we're gonna gain. We focus so much on the things that we lose that we don't take a step towards what God actually has for us. I'm guilty of this, I have done this. When we focus on what we lose and not what we'll gain in Christ, we'll never take a step. We'll always be stagnant. We'll always be a part of the crowd of the curious and not very serious about what God is doing. So you have this guy who's, who's acting like a believer by risking it all for Jesus, coming to him with a desperate need that his son is terminally ill. His son is on his deathbed. We would do anything for our kids, right? How many parents do I have in here this morning? If you have a child, you would do anything for your kid, wouldn't you? Absolutely anything if it meant their well-being. This guy has a deep, desperate need for his son to be healed. And he comes to Jesus with it. He, and so he goes, this father goes, it's important to know that he's going not with saving faith. He's not a saved Christian. He's an unbeliever at this point. So he's not coming with saving faith. He's coming with knowing that if anybody is capable, it's Jesus. He doesn't fully comprehend who Jesus is at this point. And it says, the text says that he asked Jesus to come. The literal translation, the best literal translation for the word asked is really implored. Why is that important? I'll explain. We think, when we think of the word ask, my wife asks me to do something, and I better do it, but she asks me to do something. I ask you to take out the trash. I ask you to take out um, the dog. I ask you to do the dishes. We're talking about the most literal word for when this guy came and said, Jesus, come. The real word is implored. That's a deeper meaning. That's coming from desperation. He's saying, I implore you, Jesus, I implore you, please come. There's a sense of desperation when you fully understand the text. This guy coming and saying, Lord, please come. It's not just, hey, Jesus, would you you take a moment to come to my house real quick and do a miracle? No, he's saying, please do whatever you can do. Please, I implore you. That's a deep word for a desperate situation. Please just come. It's like when Jesus turned water into wine. Before that, Mary said, told the disciples, do whatever he tells you. Her asking Jesus is the equivalent of saying, Jesus, we're out of wine. This is embarrassing. This is a party. This is a wedding. We got to have the wine. 
please just do something. Please just do something. And in the same way, but more desperate of a need of a little boy dying, this guy comes and says, Jesus, please. Not merely asking, but imploring. He's driven by need and by desperation. Because what we see as Christians is we either fall into two categories when we're in the midst of a tough situation where, a, where maybe somebody in our family is sick or maybe a job loss or something like that. We find ourselves in two positions. We either are depressed about the situation, not moving, just, just sitting there depressed, or we are desperate for Jesus' solutions. We're either depressed about our situation or desperate for Jesus' solutions. Now, depression has ran in my family for years. And one thing my, my family will tell you is that those who are clinically depressed, uh, maybe just going through a seasonal depression, the only way to overcome that, to come out of it, is to get desperate for solutions and to get desperate and start taking steps towards recovery, not to just sit there. Because so many times when we get depressed about our situation, we forget to call out to God, but we criticize him. God, you haven't shown up the way I wanted you to. I'm without a job now because I, I told somebody about you. I'm in a tough situation, so we begin to criticize him. But when we're desperate like this man, we call out and cry to him. There's a difference between criticizing and calling out. When we call out to Jesus, we implore him to show us what he's doing, to reveal himself to us as he is everybody in the book of John. But so many times we get, we get settled in this other category where we simply just criticize and walk away. I know this because I've been there multiple times. So are we being critical or are we actually calling out to our heavenly father? So we see this curious crowd of people who just want to see a show and then now we see a serious man. I, want, I challenge you to kind of evaluate which category your faith falls into at this point today. Because what we see in Proverbs 28, 20 is that God blesses not the curious crowd, not the ones who just are there for the show, but he blesses the, those who are serious about what he's called them to do. Proverbs 28, 20 is gonna be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. We'll briefly go through it. It says, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So many times we go to Jesus with a get rich quick scheme or get out of, get out of jail free card or, or God, just get me out of this one last thing and I'll never do it again. How many of you guys have said that before? Lord, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll never do it again. I can't tell you how many times I said that in high school. It didn't work the way I thought it would. But it says, go back, go back to it for a second, please. It says, a faithful man, a man who is faithful to God, who is enduring, who is serious about the call that God has, on their life will abound with many blessings, with much blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Whoever's focused just on the things that Jesus can do, not who he is, they're not gonna receive that blessing. And Brandon, he defines the blessing very well of God. He talks about it being the presence of God in your life, knowing that you now have a purpose. And he talks about it being the power of God in your life, the Holy Spirit. You're able to overcome things and walk away from things that you never used to be able to. And then it's also provision, God constantly providing for us daily. Give us our daily bread. If you're here in this room today and you're breathing, you're alive, you're still being provided for. But the beautiful thing about God is even after death, we're still provided for, even in Christ. So we get the power, the provision, the purpose, and the presence of God. That is the blessing. But so many times we think of blessing as like a physical, tangible thing. That's not what the word blessing means. Lord, the Lord's not blessing me with any riches. He's not blessing me with any new fancy car. He's not blessing me with any of these things. We're focused on the things that he's doing or he's, that he can do, not who he is. Because knowing Jesus in Christ, fully understand, not fully understanding, but knowing who he is as your Lord and Savior, that is the blessing that brings forth other blessings. And you get to experience that through the, through the power and presence and provision that he offers. My question to you is, are you experiencing that blessing? How many of us, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us in here today are thinking, well, that sounds nice, but it's just not working in my life. It's just not working. I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried this, I've tried prayer, I've tried worship, I've tried intercession, I've tried, and he's just not blessing me. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. It's about time we stop trying and let God try. Really let him in. 
Really open yourself up. That's a risk when you open yourself up. But the promise of the word is that he's not gonna let us down. He's not going to let us down. You guys still with me? So we see that, and then this man, and this man shows up, and then Jesus says, unless, the response to his request is, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This sounds kind of direct and kind of harsh. How many of you guys are like, that's kind of intense. This Jesus guy is supposed to be a Jesus of love and Jesus of, of peace and of joy, and this guy comes with a need, and he says, unless you, believe, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Would you guys kind of agree that that kind of sounds a little harsh when you're reading it? Show of hands, how many of you guys think that's a little intense? Some scholars try to smooth over it and sweeten it up and say, no, no, he's not saying it like that. I got news for you. He's saying it like that. He meant it exactly how it reads. This is meant to challenge us. The word is active and alive, and it's speaking to us today here, challenging us in this. Because what he says is, unless you see signs and wonders, this isn't just directed at the man with the need. This is the you there is plural. It's talking about everybody. So he's really saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it's easy to say, that's not true. I would believe in Jesus if he, if he, if he didn't. I, I would. But the thing is, is a lot of times we just don't. It's meant to be a challenge because what he's saying is, let me put it in kind of like how we, how we can understand it. If we say things like, if God would do blank, then I would believe, or then I would follow. That's what he's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. If we are conditioning our movement for the gospel based on God doing something, that's what he's talking about. If God would just give me this, or if God would just heal me of this, if God would just take this away, if God would just, then I would believe. And I hear this all the time. I, I, you have to understand something about me is I love what's called apologetics, the, the studying about evidence for faith and things like that. And I engage in a lot of conversations with people in this. And this is one of the main things that they say. They say, if Jesus or if God came down and he did miracles and he did this to here today, then I would believe. Then I would believe. If I saw him do it, then I would believe. But here's the problem with that is that God did step out of off his throne into human flesh, did miracles, did things, and we still called for his crucifixion. We still called for him to be crucified. So it wouldn't matter if he showed up and did all these miracles because what we do as humans, we beg for more miracles. You don't believe me? Go back to the story of Gideon when the angel of the Lord was saying, hey, I've called you to do this, and Gideon's like, well, no, you do this and I'll do it. No, you do this and I'll do it. Now, sometimes God is good and gracious, and he will meet that need. Sometimes he will, but a lot of times he won't. To hinge your movement on, on the gospel of Christ, on God doing something, is not going to work. Why? Because God has already done everything. He's already done it. So we respond by doing because he is done. Now, we bring up this word do, we think of works, and works has a bad rep in the church. We should be moving based on what God has done. But when we think about moving and good works and stuff, people say, no, I'm saved, by, I'm saved by grace alone through faith. Yeah, that's true, but we are to work that out. We are to show people that we are to work out our salvation, as Philippians puts it. Work out, not work for. What that means is that based on what Christ has done inward, we work outward. And the book of Romans says that we are going to be judged according to our works. We're going to be judged according to our works. Don't get mad at me, take it up with Paul. He's the one that said it. But we work not to be saved, but because we're saved. We act like Christians because we are Christians. That's the whole point of that. And that's, that's interesting because, like I said, the works concept has a bad rep. What we don't get judged by is our sin. Once we come to know Jesus, we're no longer judged by our sin. The Bible says there's no, therefore now no condemnation in those in Christ. That means no condemnation. The Greek word for no is none, nothing, nil, no condemnation for those in Christ. But a lot of times we, we, do, we, we feel like we have to work for our salvation because we feel condemned. We need to clear some of that up right now. You are no longer condemned. Any condemning that you feel from Christ, or not, it's not from Christ. It's from either yourself or from the enemy. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us as Christians. He convicts us. And conviction in work 
is, condemn, is, uh, is working out your salvation. Coming to the Lord, taking steps. Condemnation says sit there, do nothing about it, feel bad. Conviction says take a step towards Christ and we'll start working through this. So a lot of times what we feel is condemnation is not from, all the time, if you're in Christ, you don't receive condemnation. You are in Christ. Are you guys still with me? I know that was kind of a lot. But that's good news for us. Because that means we, we do good works because of the work that God has done within us. I don't like seeing works get a bad rap in the church because it's what we're called to do. I think that's very important. So he says, unless you see signs and wonders, it's meant to be a challenge. But in the Bible, what's, what's interesting is that in Hebrews eleven three, 3, go ahead and put it up on the screen, it tells us the process. See, we like to see God do something and then we'll believe. But this says, it says, uh, by understanding, we have faith. Uh, is that what it says? Whoops. Um, oh, it says, by faith, we understand. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Somebody say word of God. By the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What it's saying is we have faith and then we understand. God begins to reveal himself, begins to strengthen our faith, begins to reveal more and more of who he is to us based on our faith in him. That is awesome news. That is good stuff, but it's not logically how we like to think sometimes. We need to understand that miracles don't save, it's the maker of the miracles and the maker of the universe that saves. Ephesians 2, 8. If you have that, go ahead and put that up there. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. By grace through faith. Nothing we can do, no amount of miracles that we see would change the fact. The miracle that saves is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. That's what saves us. And then the, this man, this official, his response to Jesus' challenge, his response to it's interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't refute that. He doesn't refute anything about it. When Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, he doesn't respond the way we think. He says, he says, whoa, 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 no, 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 sir, please come down now. My son is dying. Six hour trip, Jesus, come with me. My son is dying. He's not looking for theology. He's not looking for apologetics. He's not looking for a whole bunch of miracles. He has a desperate desire to see his son well. He has a desperate desire to see his son live. So his heart is revealed at this moment. He doesn't comprehend who Jesus is fully, but he knows that he is capable. And this represents a lot of people in the church and out of the church. Did you guys know this is an interesting statistic? Multiple organizations have done this survey and it's the, the results are all very similar by one or 2% margin different. 30% of unbelievers pray. 30% of unbelievers play, pr play, pray. They, they play, yeah. 30% of unbelievers pray. 17% of unbelievers, non-believers, they, they pray regularly in their car. You're thinking, how does that work? How does that work? They're praying, they just don't know who to. It's kind of like, if you're out there, whoever you are, I could use a little help. I could use a little help. This man who's coming to Jesus is an unbeliever at this point. He's coming saying, if anybody can, is capable, it's you. Now the thing is, is that now we know that unbelievers pray. Unbelievers, non-believers, sorry. We know that non-believers, they pray. We know that, we know that some of them pray regularly. Who's gonna, show, who's gonna help point them to the right person to pray to? Anybody? Us, we are supposed to be those people who, who when, we see, when we see people who don't believe, we surround them with love and grace and we show them Jesus. How many of you, I mean, this might tick some people off, but uh, I only preach once every now and then, so. Um, I haven't, I've seen so much drama about the sign that was put up at the courthouse. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There was a, there was a winter solstice sign put up by the, uh, by the Freedom From Religion organization that said, let reason prevail, group of non-believers. 
an atheist organization. They put it up, and the stuff I saw on social media and Facebook was intense, it was crazy. It was degrading to a lot of people. So we can either, we can either criticize them and, 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 and get mad that non-Christians are acting like non-Christians, or we can surround them with, with the love and the grace and teach them that there is a better way. Instead of making huge, massive deals out of it, it should upset us as Christians, let me be clear, it should upset us when we see the name of our Lord disgraced. But our anger should be channeled towards pointing them to Jesus. Our, obs- our obsession with, with the, the sign issues and all these other stuff that's taking place, our whole heart should be to point people to Jesus. Anger manifested in the right way should lead people to Jesus. We shouldn't sit here and just point fingers at them and, and get upset that they're not acting like Christians because here's the deal, they're not Christians. Does that logic, I mean, logically, you can't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian any more than you should expect a Christian to act like an atheist. So this guy is coming out of a genuine desperate need to the right person. So are we the people that are going to point people who are the unbelievers to the right person? Or are we just gonna let them sit there? Do we reflect the curious crowd, the serious man, or the people who are actually saved trying to point people to Jesus? That's the question. So let's move on in verses 50 through 54, and we're going to close this up here in just a moment. 50 through 54, it says, then Jesus said to him, go. Somebody say go. 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 Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Somebody say recovering. I want you guys to note these words down. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, now we have a believer. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Go, your son will live. Go. Your son will live. One of, the, one of God's favorite words in the Bible is go. Because when he tells us to go, it means that we're going on faith alone. Because we don't understand what's gonna happen. We don't know what's gonna happen. He, this, guy wasn't, this guy may not have been 110% sure that his son was gonna be healed, but I believe that he knew that he was speaking to an honest man who was genuine, who was more than just a mere man. He says, go. All throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, go, your son will live. We see, we see children who are about to face death with an illness or with being taken over politically or, or from wars. We see all throughout the Bible, we see God sparing these children. And it's funny because the the illusion here, the foreshadowing here is that Jesus is saying, go, your son will live. The overall foreshadowing of this is God God saying, your son will live because mine will die. Your child will live because mine will die. But he's not talking about just the physical life. There's an eternal aspect about this foreshadowing because let's be honest, there are some times where children die. I mean, and it's, it's sad and it breaks my heart. I mean, my brother Jason, when I was 13 years old, he died in a car accident. I didn't know what to do with that. So when I see this text, immediately when I'm, when I'm angry and I see this text that says, go, your son will live. I'm like, well, where, where, was you on, where were you on my brother's side there? You let all these kids live, you let all these people live, but you, you didn't come help me out. There's more than a physical life at stake here. We won't only live physically, but the foreshadowing is that we will live eternally with God. Not just concerned about the physical life, but the eternal life as well. This guy believed without seeing. That's another thing that stood out to me. This guy believed without actually seeing the miracle. Jesus didn't walk the six hour trip back. And even even so the guy stopped and pulled over because it said 
that his servants came out and met him to let him know that his son was recovering. He had the faith in that word. And church, there is power in the spoken word of Christ. There is power in the word of God. That sounds cliche. I know we hear it all the time, but I challenge you to really comprehend what that means. Let's, fa- let's, let's rewind thousands of years when Moses was writing Genesis in the wilderness. God said, let there be light and there was light. There's a difference between when God speaks and when we speak. Church, when we speak, we have to follow it up with action. If I tell my wife I'm going to take out the trash, I follow it up by taking out the trash. But with God, when God speaks, his word is the action. His word is the action. There is power in just merely his words. So when he said, go, your son will live, his son is already done. And it's so funny, let's fast forward some thousands of years. When John is an old man penning this book, he begins by stating that Jesus is the word. What an interesting choice of words to call a person. A word is an instrument of communication. It's how we communicate. It's how we we talk with one another. We worship with words. We sing with words. John called Jesus the word because it was Jesus, it was God's way of communicating with us, letting us know that we have eternal life if we follow him. There is power in his word because this is his word and it's alive and it's active. And if God's word is alive and active as the Bible says it is, and as Christians believe, if this word is alive and active, then those who believe this should be alive and active as well. I don't wanna be a part of a stagnant church. And I don't, I don't, I don't think you'd want to either. I wanna be a part of a church that's making a dent not here for the show, but here for the Savior. Because there's power in this word to change lives. It's already changed one life this morning. It's changed a ton of lives over the last few years here. There's power in this word. And when, and when the Bible says that there's no, therefore no condemnation, guess what? There's no condemnation for those in Christ. It's living, it's active, it's speaking, it's piercing, it's life-altering. Goes on to say, your son is recovering. The servants came and said, your son is recovering. When we come to know Jesus, it's not gonna turn all into just rainbows, butterflies, peaches and cream, and all nice stuff. There's people that teach that and it's inaccurate. Coming to know Jesus, we're called justified when we're saved. And then we enter into a process called sanctification where we're being made more and more and more like Christ. Think of it like Jesus is trimming the hedges so that you can bear fruit. It doesn't always feel good. And you're in a recovery process. That recovery process is sanctification. And then when we die and we're with God, we enter in glorification. Your son is recovering. There is more at stake here than just this son, than just this boy recovering. When we come to know Jesus, we're recovering. So if you're struggling in your faith today, know that you're in a recovery process, but that you can't overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't sit in condemnation, let's step in conviction. Because that's what Christ's word has spoken over yours, your life and my life. Let's walk in that. And it says they all believed. The whole household believed. This dad's faith, putting everything on the line, going to Jesus, set the tone for the household. Parents, if I could talk to you for a minute, you set the tone in your household of your child's spiritual walk. They may not always obey, but they will always reflect. And some of us, the reality is sometimes some of our kids right now are not walking with the Lord. 
That's just the truth. But it's not your job nor my job to save them. It's the Holy Spirit. What you can do is reflect the character of Christ to them. If you're doing so, continue to do so. Implore God. Go on their behalf. This father left his son on his deathbed to go to Jesus. Jesus first. That's a beautiful picture of what it looks like as a parent to to set the tone of faith in your household because it says they all believed. Your Your faith can't save somebody else's, but it can lead other people to Jesus. Be encouraged in that. So this all, it's all ended well. It all ended well. My question is what happens when it doesn't end so well like we see here though? I mean, we see, we see the son get healed, but the truth of the matter is some of us are experiencing pain and suffering today. And maybe it's because we haven't, we don't understand it. We, don't, we can't comprehend it. We don't, we don't see a purpose in it. Maybe because one, we haven't said yes to a saving relationship with Jesus and we're not seeing that it has a purpose. When I was 10, I prayed for my parents not to get divorced. They got divorced. When my brother died, I was like, God, why, why, why? And I spent several years asking why. And finally, when I came to a saving faith, I wasn't saved the whole time I was asking this God why, which is interesting because I was one of those unbelievers that were crying out. God, why, why, why? If you're there, why? But when I came to a saving knowledge, I began to understand. I may not ever get the answer that I want, but instead of saying, why me, why this? I began to say, use me, use this. And what I do know is that the testimony of me losing my brother and the things that I've gone through, my wife and I have gone through, the testimony of all of that has helped lead many, many young people to a saving relationship with Jesus. Many people refuse to believe in Christianity because of the problem of suffering and evil. Atheism doesn't solve the problem of suffering and evil. It doesn't. In fact, it is through God and God's word that we find purpose, that we can take something bad and make it good. There's power in God's word today. And he can heal. God is still into doing miracles. I challenge you to continue to implore him. But remember that we are in God's will. It is thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not thy kingdom come, my will be done. Oftentimes, if I'm being honest, and we're about to leave here, I promise. When I'm honest with myself, when I've said things like, God, I trusted you and you didn't show up, the reality was I just didn't trust him. I trusted him only with my agenda. That's the truth for me. I think for all of us. I trusted you with this and you didn't show up. What I'm saying is you didn't show up in the way that I wanted you to. And I wasn't looking for his purpose. It's tough and it's challenging, I know. And Augustine, early church father, telling a widow woman who has lost everything, she was saying, how do you endure suffering? How do you do it? When I'm suffering, when I'm broken, when I'm lost, when I'm hurt, how do you do it, Augustine? Mr. Holy Man, tell me how you do it. Augustine's response was unique. He says, sometimes suffering can be used as a shield against self-dependency and pride. We can learn to lean on God in our suffering than trying to rely on our own strength. That's the beauty of the power of the Holy Spirit. So my question is, which group does our faith reflect? Are we curious, not really moving for God? Do we even have a relationship with God? Are we serious about coming to him? Or are we, are we genuinely saved and taking steps towards him? Are we running to Jesus as this man ran six hours to get to him on behalf of his son? Are we leading people to Christ like this man led his family? Do we know Jesus this morning? I honestly believe that God desires to change lives through his word because his word is active and alive and it's piercing. And some of us here today have not said yes to Christ. There's a high likelihood that that's the case. And that you feel your heart rate is racing, not even nothing right now because you know that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to him, but you may be scared, but you may be resisting a little bit. Don't resist the spirit because the power of God's word in your life is I can't even explain it. It's so powerful. It it intercedes for us. He comforts us. He convicts us and tells us when we're doing something wrong, we need to straighten up a little bit. So if that's you here this morning, church, if you're in this room and you've never said yes to Jesus, and I'm not talking about 
I mean, if you've even been a part of the crowd of the curious and you feel like you haven't had a saving relationship with them, you've just been going kind of through the motions, but nothing has ever changed. It's one thing to claim Christianity, but it's another thing to back it up. If maybe that's you, maybe you, maybe you haven't ever really experienced that change and this morning you say yes for the first time to a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If that is you and your heart is racing, don't let your neighbor distract you. Don't let anything distract you. Don't be nervous because this is a beautiful thing. You're going from life, or you're going from death to life. You're going to physical life to eternal life. Your life has been given a purpose. If this is you this morning and you say yes to Jesus for the first time, I'm just gonna ask you to stand up so we can celebrate with you. So that we can just celebrate with you. We're not gonna call you out, bring you down to the front. Anybody here, I wanna give you that opportunity to respond. Amen. Give anybody else an opportunity to stand up before we close. Amen. Man, welcome to the family. So glad that you've said yes to Jesus this morning. Somebody's gonna come pray with you here in just a moment. But for the rest of us, are we going, as Jesus said, go in faith? Are we serving? If this morning you've said yes, and you're just wanting, I just want you to declare with me that you're ready to take the gospel serious in this community, that you're ready to, to change this community for the good. You're ready to lead these people, these, these non-believers who are, are praying to somebody who they don't even know exists, that you're ready to lead them there. If you're ready to, to stand up for the gospel in Bullock County, and you're ready to get serious about this faith, I'm gonna ask you to stand. This is not like a rededication or anything. This is just a commitment saying, I'm all in for the gospel in this community. Church, let's live like it. Let's live like it. Our words have to be backed up with action, but God's spoken word over us is that we're already, we're already freed. So let's walk in that. I'm gonna pray with you. Our prayer leaders are gonna come to the front. If you need prayer for anything, if you're going through any type of suffering, any type of anxiety questions or anything, please come get prayer. Our prayer leaders are gonna be up here at the front after service. There's gonna be piano playing, just gonna be quiet. The rest of us can be dismissed quietly after I pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've changed lives today, Lord, that people have gone from death to life, not only from death to life, but life to eternal life in you, Lord. We thank you that we stand not condemned, Lord, but set free. Lord, we know that we're set free not to do whatever we want, but from doing whatever we want. We thank you that you save us, Lord, and you've preserved us and you've called us your own. We thank you that we can call you Father and that you are holy. Thank you for who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.